Summer is a great time for catching up on military history, and my book about the seven Black Medal of Honor recipients of World War II, Immortal Valor, has just been released in paperback. Immortal Valor chronicles these timeless heroes, life journeys through all the pain and struggle until their ultimate triumphs. I hope you pick up the new paperback version, hardcover or audiobook, available in stores and online. When you get to Vietnam, the SEALs, they've been trained from 62 when they're created to 66 when they arrive in Vietnam. They've been trained as coastal commandos to raid installations, to uh, either parachute uh, behind enemy lines, to you know destroy an enemy headquarters or a truck depot or a radar dish or something like that, and then escape to the sea. When they get to Vietnam, none of this exists. An excerpt from today's guest who's written a book about the history of the Navy SEALs. Author and former Navy SEAL Ben Milligan is here, and I'll speak with him right after this break. This is Point of the Spear. Welcome back. I'm Robert Child. Today's guest became a U.S. Navy SEAL in 2001 and served until 2009. He is the recipient of the Bronze Star and other decorations. A native of Indianapolis, he received a B.A. in History at Purdue and a Master's in International Relations from the University of San Diego. His book is called By Water Beneath the Walls, The Rise of the Navy Seals. It came out in July, and Ben Milgan joins us now. Ben, welcome to the show. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Rob. It's, uh, it's quite an impressive book, and I just want to reference uh, a review. Deeply researched and well-organized and incredibly engaging. By Water Beneath the Walls is one of the finest histories I've read about the formation and the rise of the Navy SEALs. Admiral William H. McRaven. That's impressive. Congratulations. It was very generous of uh, the Admiral to give that uh, remark. Yeah. Do you know the Admiral? I don't. My uh, limited interaction with him uh, was he was running past uh, my class once while <laughs> he was, I think, the commanding officer of SEAL Team 3. It had been... Uh, not long after he had published his uh, his book uh, Spec Ops, uh, and so I think uh, just about every reader in my class had at least uh, bought the book. I'm not sure if anyone had actually read it, but we knew who he was. So, so you can hold it all up, <laughs> right? While you're running by, yeah, he he who yawed our class, and we who yawed back. So it was uh, it was quite a moment. <laughs> so when I, uh, I if I ever do meet him, I'm going to ask him if he remembers me. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you were the one holding up the book. Yeah, <laughs> right. Oh, right. Did, did he and does it, did his writing that book inspire you to write your book? I know it took you seven years, you said, to write. Uh, it actually took, a, took longer, unfortunately. The, the, uh, the publisher gave me uh, a two-year contract to write the thing. Uh, I went six years over that, and I did an additional two years before I even got the contract. Wow. So this is a 10 year, 10 year undertaking. It, um, the, yes, in some ways, I, I, I remember reading the book and I remember liking the, like the episodic quality to it. Um, and, uh, the only thing that I had wanted out of his book more was some, some sort of, um, you know, more, some sort of connective tissue. When I sat down to write a book, I wanted, I wanted to, you know, you know, grab the, grab my reader by the collar and drag them through, you know, five, 600 pages. Right. Um, yeah. But I needed, I needed some sort of vehicle to do that. Uh, and I, 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 I loved all of his stories and I, you know, I, I thought uh, 
a couple of times about pirating a couple of his uh, <laughs> examples. I ended up going with a completely different set, but he, he found some good ones. So Yeah, definitely. Had you always wanted to write a book? Uh, always. I, you know, I grew up uh, wanting to write history books. Um, I, uh, I came by it pretty honestly. My, uh, my mom's dad, my grandfather was a, um, was a big reader. Um, uh, he would, um, often, uh, he was, <laughs> he was, a um, he had his own window and awning business, but his hobby was, uh, was American history. When I was in junior high, he, he started taking me, um, every fall every fall break to a different uh american battlefield so we we saw all the american south we went uh, uh we went east we saw gettysburg we saw revolutionary war battlefields um i had uh i had history in my in my bones from a very early age and i the only thing that was eluding me for you know 35 years before i started working on this book was uh, a topic i just needed that yeah <laughs> well you, you certainly wrote about what you know yeah <laughs> it's not what i initially set out to do i you know i um i was uh, i had my heart set on writing a book about the first world war you know about uh, two three months into my research i came to the realization no one in their right mind was going to let somebody like me write a book about the first world war i had no background i wasn't a phd i, I didn't uh, you know so i i, I collected myself and uh you know, I had had a little moment, uh, had a little talk with myself, and you know, came to the. Uh, we we all came to the understanding that nobody was going to buy a book about by somebody like me unless it was about uh, American special operations. So, and fortunately, I'd always had that question, you know, in my head. I never understood it. I this institution that uh, you know I'd given, you know, uh, almost a decade of my life to, uh, and mm -hmm. and you know, served around the world um, with. I I could never understand why. Uh, you know, me as an American sailor, essentially, uh, uh, you know, a, a member of the United States Navy was spending so much time in the deserts of Iraq. Right. Um, and it was a puzzle that even when I left the Navy, I just because I couldn't really figure out. I was just stuck with it. When you uh, returned home on, on leave one time, didn't your grandmother ask you, uh, <laughs> is it, yeah, you in the desert since you were a sailor? <laughs> She did. I mean, she and she was she wasn't without context herself. She uh, um, she was, uh, you know, generation of, uh, you know, gone through World War Two. And uh, she had uh, she'd married a Marine. Her seven brothers had all been um, sailors in the United States Navy. She knew what the Navy did. She knew that the Navy didn't, uh, um, you know, send guys into Iraq and Afghanistan. So she uh, her understanding of what a seal was was something vaguely uh, similar to a rescue swimmer and she didn't understand what the hell i was <laughs> she'd been to my graduation she'd seen the video but she didn't know i don't blame her i didn't either yeah, yeah. yeah we're ems you know <laughs> the right. Man. right yeah it, it it is you know for people outside the service uh, hard to picture what you do i mean you see the television and the movie the movies about seals but right for, for yourself personally before you went in became a seal did you have a different concept of what it was in the as opposed I, to after i suppose i did i had uh i had some sense of you know i mean i uh, let me start over i think i had a um i had a really good idea of what the seal teams were um, and I, I knew that the SEAL teams operated everywhere on the planet, or at least that's that's how they build them. 
And um, when I, uh, I, uh, my first deployment was, uh, um, was <laughs> uh, intimately uh, connected to the Navy, which was a, a little bit of not what I expected. I, I had expected a lot more um, kinetic and, uh, you know, uh, on the ground or other in Iraq or Afghanistan. And we were attached to a, a, a MARG um, or a, a Marine uh, battalion. And we were, you know, essentially we rode uh, um, an amphibious uh, landing craft uh, for six months, maybe not, not, you know, that long, but um, we were, we were intimately connected to them. So I was, uh, I was struck by how connected <laughs> the SEAL teams were to the Navy uh, until I got into my, uh, my next deployment. And that uh, deployment, the only time we touched the water was in the, uh, was in the Euphrates river. And we spent, uh, like I say, in the introduction, we spent uh, six months doing nothing but, uh, you know, setting rooftop, rooftop ambushes and uh, raiding house after house in search of Al Qaeda, which is exactly what I expected. Uh, and I would have been disappointed if, uh, if I hadn't had uh, that experience. I just didn't understand why I was having it. Oh, well, it's... Uh... And I didn't understand why, you know, we were we were out there serving, you know, alongside, uh, you know, American Marines, uh, who I, you know, understood to, to be the uh, the more logical entity for that mission. Yeah. Um, and here we were, you know, time and time again, pushing out further and farther than the Marines. Oftentimes, the Marines were coming to get us or <laughs> or help us. Uh, we couldn't have been, we would not have been able to do what we did without the Marines. But uh, it still was a contradiction that I couldn't explain. Did took they me ever 10 ask years. you what you guys were doing there? <laughs> well, like I said, I mean, we were uh, we were you know uh, serving um, uh, the uh, you know the pleasure of the battle space commander, right. um, and the battle space commander wanted uh, you know uh, his seals pushed out as as far as he could in search of uh, those insurgents. We got stuck, then he was going to send his marines. Uh, so. Is there a mission that stands out in your time in the service? Um, is there anything you could share? Not sure there's a, a particular mission, but that that deployment uh, in particular stands out. I mean that that uh, that whole deployment. This, if you if I have a crowded hour, that's it. I mean it was uh, um, uh, that uh, that deployment reminded me. I would get um, you know uh, a sense of that deployment. Um, you know, in the next 10 years that I wrote the book, I was, you know, working with uh, local scouts that we had trained, uh, you know, in, you know, best as we could in SEAL tactics, um, which always, uh, it was something I always thought about whenever I was, you know, writing sections of the book that uh, dealt with, uh, you know, training indigenous forces or, I mean, and that happens uh, time and time again uh, in the um, in the history of not just uh, naval special warfare, um, but it happens in with uh, the history of American or uh, Army special operations, um, and that's you know that seemed to be for at least me um, that seemed to be an entryway um, for these uh, these sorts of commando type operations that uh, the American or the Americans ultimately got into. It seemed to start um, at least the Navy's uh, experience in commando type operations. It occurs it occurs in World War II in China. Um, of course, you have this this whole uh, period um, leading up to that that moment where you've got uh, 
Navy scouts and Navy demolitions experts. Uh, they're not doing what we would uh, traditionally call special or uh, commando type operations. It's not until the Navy actually gets uh, gets its own battle space in China. And very few people realize that the Navy had its own battle space in China. It, it was the Navy essentially had its own army in China. Um, in World War II. During World and, War II. Yeah. In World War II, and there uh, people like uh, uh, Mary Miles and Buck Halpern are, are literally, uh, these are, you know, Navy sailors that are, that are leading us what are, what are essentially uh, commando raids. We'll be back to the conversation after this quick break. You know, it's, it's really uh, a privilege to be involved with a documentary about uh, the USS Franklin. And the Franklin was something that uh, that I'd always been fascinated by. And then producer Joe Small and producer-director Rob Childs come to me and say, look, uh, how about if you use your dulcet tones to, uh, to, tell, us, to tell the Franklin story? So as I began to look through the story and as Rob and Joe kept sending me more and more material, uh, this thing was peeling like an onion. I was, I was seeing more and more and more of a really, really important story in naval history, uh, and one which hasn't been, hadn't been told. So, uh, they, you know, they had to uh, throw a two-inch heaving line on me to keep me from charging right down here to the, uh, to the studio and, and helping to put this together. Captain Dale Dye narrates USS Franklin, Auto Restored. Available now on Amazon Prime. Now back to my conversation with author and former Navy SEAL, Ben Milligan. You mentioned two turning points in the history of the SEALs in your book. First was uh, Kennedy, and then second was uh, Vietnam, 1967. Right. Mention what Kennedy did for our listeners. That, uh... So Kennedy is the first person, or he's the first... Uh, um, uh, well, that's not even true. So, so there's been a couple of, uh, of folks um, at you know national office and that have been in the presidency who have seen this potential of small units um, uh, that are able to um, uh, do more with less. Uh, what, what, what's Winston Churchill's quote? Uh, We've run out of money. Now we have to start thinking. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he, you know, they, uh, in both instances, the president has been, uh, oddly enough, a Democrat. You had FDR, who um, was uh, um, infatuated with uh, commando raids, and that's how uh, the Marine Corps raiders um, are created early on in the war. Uh, that's how uh, the Army uh, uh, ultimately decides to create uh, the Army Rangers. Um, and, you know, in each of those instances, uh, you know, the service branches, whether it was the Army or the Marine Corps, they weren't particularly thrilled about having these new units that the president wanted them to have. Um, they made the best of it at the time. Uh, but when we get to Kennedy, uh, Kennedy is, um, you'd think that Kennedy would be this uh, uh, president who, uh, he, he would have the mindset of uh, um, confronting the Soviets with all the power all the the mechanical uh, power of the U.S. Navy, uh, the U.S. Air Force, uh, bombs, ships. What Kennedy sees, though, is all these these small uh, brush fires that are uh, sort of uh, erupting all over the world, and um, you know whether it was uh, his reading of Barbara Tuckman's uh, Guns of August, mm -hmm. or his uh, uh, early uh, encounter in the Bay of Pigs invasion, that really. Um, 
scares him of the potential of these small brush fire wars of turning into massive forest fires. So what he wants are these uh, smaller units that uh, are able to confront communism uh, in the third world um, and mobilize uh, guerrillas or indigenous peoples. Uh, and if not, you know, turn them into capitalists, then at least deny them uh, to the enemy, at least deny them to the communists. So what Kennedy does is he um, he incentivizes uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the uh, American military establishment to create these small units that uh, is best seen um, with his uh, connection to the Green Berets or to the Army Special Forces. Um, and while he's doing that, though, the Navy, uh, particularly the Navy's uh, uh, Chief of Naval Operation Arlie Burke, uh, he's got this completely other idea. He's not thrilled about the idea of going in and helping uh, indigenous peoples. Uh, he has uh, an idea of creating uh, coastal raiders, commandos, something mm. much more in line with traditional Navy missions, uh, which is fine because, you know, Kennedy's not uh, around long enough to have much of an impact or input on what the, the Navy's uh, interpretation of these small units uh, is going to become. Right. To answer your second question, though, and that's, I think, really where it gets interesting, you've got uh, you're 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 getting away from um, the input of these national level leaders and the or, and even the CNO. When you get to Vietnam, uh, the SEALs, um, they've been trained uh, from 62 when they're created to 66 when they arrive in Vietnam. They've been trained as coastal commandos to raid installations, to uh either parachute uh, behind enemy lines uh, to, you know, destroy an enemy headquarters or a truck depot or a radar dish or something like that, and then escape to the sea. Um, when they get to Vietnam, none of this exists. There are no radar dishes. There are no enemy uh, headquarters uh, to raid. Uh, they don't know what to do. And their first deployment uh, almost ends in abject failure. Uh, they almost send them home because of the, uh, the commanding officer, or the, uh, the platoon commander, uh, he runs off with, with an American nurse <laughs> and he, he doesn't want his guys to uh, really engage. He, there's nothing really for them to do. In fact, he tells his replacement, don't unpack. This isn't for us. <laughs> and it's only because of the input of Phil Bucklew that the SEALs ultimately decide to stay in Vietnam. But once they're there, once they've decided to stay, they still don't know what the hell to do. And it takes them another whole year to figure out, well, if we're not going to be coastal raiders, then what are we going to be? Right. And it's up to, um, you know, uh, uh, junior officers and chief petty officers uh, to figure that out. And ultimately they do. And they uh, transition from being these coastal raiders, which is what the Navy had originally wanted, to go anywhere, capture, kill commandos. I see. So it really happened in Vietnam. It happens in Vietnam. That's where the that's where the SEALs find their mission, and that mission has, uh, I think, uh, it's it it became the center of gravity for the SEAL teams. It's uh, it's the cultural center of gravity. Without that mission, the SEAL teams aren't the SEAL teams. You have a degree in history. I do. You mentioned that, or maybe we didn't. <laughs> oh. <laughs> It's a long time ago, so I, yeah, I may yeah. have forgotten myself. Yeah. Well, we, we talked about your love of history and, um, you know, growing up and um, traveling to all the battlefields. And I've spent a lot of time in Gettysburg, that's for sure. Um, it's a special place. This, this is your first 
history book. Do you plan additional ones? Do you have that, like you mentioned, that World War One book that you just got to do? Yeah, I. Uh, that's a great question. I. Um, yeah, I don't. Uh, I do plan. Well, I'd like to write another book. This took a lot out of me. Um, yeah. Took a lot out of me for a long time, and I. I, I need. need uh, I need some sort of post-traumatic stress uh, <laughs> uh, trip to, to, to get out of my head. Not that I wasn't uh, happy to do it. I was. I was thrilled to do it. It was, uh, yeah. you know, it gave me purpose every day. I, I loved it. But I also, you know, it's uh, it's an awful heavy burden to have around your neck for 10 years. For that 10 said, years. I don't think I could write anything else. I've not tried to write fiction. I've not tried to write any uh, any other type of book uh, I, I don't think i have the confidence for fiction i think you've got to be uh, either an exceptionally uh confident smart or stupid person to to, to, to throw your head in the ring in fiction yeah um, it's, a, it's a challenge but it's, it's an awfully crowded field and um and the one advantage that you have if you're writing history is you've got research to to guide you i always had at least four note cards on my desk i don't i don't really believe in writer's block but i do believe in not uh doing enough uh, or sufficient research. Yeah, I, uh, I agree with that. I've, I've written historical fiction and, fic and um, nonfiction. I just finished a nonfiction book. Uh, you find uh, the, the fiction harder or, or the... Well, what I was going to say is the fiction is easier. Is it? You don't have to have the copious research. I mean, I saw your endnotes in the book. They're you know, 20 pages of endnotes. And, you know, I, I have endnotes in my book, and, and they're 13 pages. <laughs> right. It, yeah, I get, well, that, that's true. I, I just don't, I think I'd get lost in my own head. Uh, at least I've, I'm, uh, I'm afraid I would. Now, what my uh, agent, um, you, may, you may be familiar with, uh, with him, Jim Hornfisher, who was a, you know, an incredible naval historian in his own right. He just passed away from a glioblastoma, mm -hmm. uh, much too young. But he, um, when I started working on this book, I had, you know, this idea that I, you know, I was going to write this book and then I'd write my, my World War I book and then I'd move on to something completely different. Uh, he, his advice to me was that no, no um, writer can ask for a better uh, fate than to be um, uh, pigeonholed in their own in their own topic. I mean, he was happy uh, just to stay in his lane in uh, you know naval history in World War II. I'm not sure I would uh, be comfortable just staying in those close confines, but I do think that historical narrative is probably the only thing that I, <laughs> I could do. <laughs> yeah. But I do like. I mean, I'm like I you know I'm 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 kind of stuck with this. This is uh, uh, you know. Uh, I caught this enthusiasm from my my dad and my grandfather and my, just my family, and uh, I think this is uh, this is the field that I'll probably stay in, and and happy to stay here too. Yeah, it's uh, it's a wonderful field. Thank and, you. <laughs> yeah. And underserved too. I mean, I uh, I don't know how how well colleges are doing these days uh, in teaching just uh, you know in just teaching history. I, I'm, it's a lot of. Uh, a lot of niche topics that, that people are talking about, but I, um, well, I think that the the market is probably the curiosity for for what the colleges are leaving out. But yeah, yeah, there is a void out there, uh, especially for a, a book like this, and um, especially for, for people that have a passion for history because it comes through in the writing. You know, it just oh, thanks. 
if you love a topic, you're going to write about it, and you're going to write well about it, and you're going to care about it. Absolutely. And and connect with the readers, and that's that's what's important, in in my view. I don't know. I couldn't agree more. It's probably. I mean, I mean the best reason I. Have... Uh, come across for not going into academia is I never wanted anybody to tell me what to write about. I, I wanted to come to my topics, you know, and um, uh, I didn't want to publish something because there was a um, there was a need for it. I wanted to write something because I wanted to write it or because I wanted to learn about it. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I don't care if anybody else reads it. I wrote this book for me. I wasn't, you know, I didn't write this for a target audience or I wrote the book that I wanted to read. And um, I think, you know, this, like I said, it's an underserved, I I don't think a lot of folks have put a lot of deep thought um, into uh, uh, American special operations, I think, because a lot of, uh, you know, writers of history have, you know, rightly thought that this is, you know, a corner of American military history that hasn't been particularly consequential, at least until the last 20 years. And now it's, you know, it's overwhelmingly consequential. and yeah. have these, you know, monumental moments like uh, with the, uh, you know, the, the killing of Al Baghdadi, uh, or the, you know, the, right. the killing of Osama bin Laden, or you know, the Green Berets, uh, um, you know, <laughs> getting in a, uh, leading a, a horseback campaign in the middle of Afghanistan. Oh, I mean, right. these are, yeah. we, we couldn't, uh, we wouldn't have the the reach that our our military has today without these units. Right. And you know, this book is. If nothing else, I mean, it's, it, you know, half of the book is, uh, you know, history of, you know, how the SEALs got out of the water, how the Navy's, you know, Navy's uh, special operations units got out of the water, but the whole other half is the reason they got out of the water. And they wouldn't have gotten out of the water if it wasn't for these, you know, other units in American uh, military history, the Rangers and the Raiders and all of these units that were created by the Army, created by the Marine Corps, and for whatever reason, they were disbanded. They were disbanded right when they were getting good, mm-hmm. leaving this monumental gap for the Navy to fill. And they have filled it, that's for sure. Yeah, they filled it. But all, and and, the, and the, the best part of the whole story is that, you know, all these other units have um, come back. And now they're, you know, mutually supportive. You know, there's still some, some uh, you know, uh, brotherly rivalry, but um, yeah, the, to see these units work together, um, it's... Uh, uh, and then to put, you know, to see them working together, but then to understand, the, you know, their histories and their mutually um, supporting histories and how these units, whether they're Green Berets or Rangers or Delta Force or SEALs or whatever, these units would not exist without each other, without the, uh, you know, the, the overlapping legacies of guys like Charlie Beckwith and Mary Miles and Bill Donovan and Phil Bucklew. And they, I mean, they, these people, they contributed to each other's history, whether we know it or not. Fascinating history, absolutely fascinating history, and a fantastic book. Thank you very much. The book is called By Water Beneath the Walls, The Rise of the Navy Seals. It's out now. Ben, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Rob. That's it for this episode. Thanks again for joining me. Next time, my guest will be Colin Cahoon, author of Mended Wings, the Vietnam War experience through the eyes of 10 American Purple Heart helicopter pilots. You know, I've known a lot of Vietnam vets uh, through my career and my personal life. And 
I, I'm, I'm, there, there's probably some out there. There has to be that we're not shot down. But I have to tell you, I've never, I don't recall ever meeting one. All of these, all these guys, even if they weren't injured, and there are a lot of them who are a Purple Heart recipients, but all of them were shot down at least once, twice, sometimes six to ten times. They were definitely the, the, the pointed end of the spear of the American military yeah. effort, and they, they took a disproportionate amount of uh, beating as a result. That's next time. And you can stay up to date with all the upcoming guests. Just sign up for the email newsletter at robchild.net. I'm Robert Child, and this has been Point of the Spear. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.